before we start with that scripture reading, let me just kind of recap a little bit from the previous weeks. We've talked a lot about self-sacrifice and surrender to God. And the conviction that you have no doubt felt comes from the word of God and it penetrates your heart. And it also is a little hard to bear, isn't it? it it's scary to think that God expects so much from us. In last week's message, I hope that I was able to give you one very important nugget that if you don't remember anything else, I hope you'll remember this, that Jesus says in the midst of it all, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, he's saying you're blessed if you are on the journey to holiness, if you're on the journey to be the person of the Beatitudes, the person that Jesus is describing in this Sermon on the Mount. If you're on the way and it's your goal to get there, then you're blessed in many respects because you have made this your goal. Now, it's not the same as saying, well, I wish I was that way and then giving it up, you know. This is something we continually to strive for. Uh, I remember Nathan when he was, uh, gosh, how old was he anyway? Well, let's start with when he was three. He and Ruthie both have spina bifida. We were told that Nathan wouldn't be able to walk or stand. And, and uh, when, when Nathan was about three years old, we kind of expected him to not be able to walk. And, and, and he kept, he would sit there in the middle of the living room floor and all of a sudden when he just felt the urge, he would start to stand. And it was something you just have to see. It was just, he would just rise up and then he'd go back down. And I kid you not, he would do that a hundred times a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. Seasons changed as I remember it. And he would stand and then fall. And then one day he stood and he stayed up and we all screamed. It was incredible. And then he would try to walk and he would go down. So the physical therapist brought him a walker, this kind of funny walker that you carry by, you drag behind you instead of pull, push in front of you. And, and he looked at that thing and he tried it a couple of times and they literally took it to our front door and threw it out in the front yard. This was all when he was three. In those days, it was fashionable to wear uh, work boots or what we used to call when I was a kid, clodhoppers, you know? And, and so Walmart just happened to have these on the shelf in his size. And so I thought to myself, I think he just needs more ankle support. I bought him these boots and he put them on and he loved them and he walked. And he started walking all over the place. Now, later on in his life, he's embarrassed now, and I'm sorry, but he says he's only this much embarrassed. Later on in his life, he got it in his head that he wanted to stand on his head. And so he did the same thing, and this is, what, about 10, 15 years later, and we were living in Franklin at the time, and he, he, would, he would do the same thing he did when he was learning to stand. He, he'd just be watching TV or sitting there in his cross-legged in the living room, you know, coloring or something, and then all of a sudden he'd stop, and he'd put his head down on the floor and his hands down on the floor, and he'd throw his legs up in the air, and then he'd go flop, 
and hit the floor. We didn't even have to be in the room to know what was going on because, well, you know, you'd hear the thump. And then one day, weeks and weeks and weeks and changing of seasons of him doing this every day, 10, 20, 30 times a day, one day we hear this, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad. And we come running to the living room thinking he's dying or something, and there he is standing on his head with his feet up in the air. You know? Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst to walk or be able to stand on your head or for righteousness. But understand that if Nathan's example inspired you, you should take away the idea that Jesus says it will take you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tries in the changing of the seasons and you just keep persevering and pressing on. And this is what it means to be blessed in that pursuit. And understand that even one of the best known saints of all time, the Apostle Paul, acknowledged that this is not something that happens overnight. He said, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I think that it's equally important to understand that you can't do this alone, that this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, it's easy to be Christian or anything else if you live alone, because who's going to judge whether you're succeeding or failing, you know? I mean, how is it difficult or challenging to learn to interact with other people in the way of Christ without other people to practice with? Perhaps that's why the author of the Hebrews, probably Paul, said that we should consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Therefore, let us join in the spirit of the theologian A.W. Tozer as we open today in his prayer about being those who mourn because of our stubborn commitment to our old way of life. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished, so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it for thyself wilt be the light of it and there shall be no night there in jesus name amen now let's look at today's passage from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10. He's finishing the Beatitudes and then giving some of the base instruction that will follow. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light the lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the blessed life starts today with the reminder that you're blessed if you're persecuted and reviled. Can I get another amen like uh, you gave Susan? Yeah. yeah. Yay, if I'm blessed, I guess, for being reviled and persecuted. It's easier to get excited about Christmas boxes than it is being persecuted and reviled. Jesus' words aren't very comforting if you take them out of context. So we have to remember that he's already laid the groundwork for us to understand that this is something that is an outcome from a changed view of self. Without repeating everything I've already shared with you up to this point, just keep in mind that the first thing that happens in order to live the blessed life of the Beatitudes is to sacrifice your pride and your self-interest and exchange them for the interests of the master and to be more committed to doing God's will than your own will. Now, this is obviously not something that happens overnight, but it is the goal. And one of the outcomes that naturally results from that is a change in the way your friends and associates perceive you. Oh, you're one of those, huh? It's kind of sickening and frustrating when you hear someone say that, and I literally have heard people say that to me. But if you understand that these are the natural consequences of a determined hunger and thirst for righteousness, that when you make your mind up to reject the things of the world and replace them with things that are highly important to your master, the Lord Jesus, sooner or later you're going to find yourself at odds with the people around you. And to be quite frank, I went into ministry 20-something years ago with this idealistic outlook about ministry and pastoral leadership in particular, and I found from even the clergy that I knew, the ones who were mentoring me and guiding me, there was a cynicism about living that way. Well, you'll never get anything done in the local church if you're always holding them to too high a standard. Okay. Or here's my favorite, and this one I still talk about because in a way, I guess I still have a problem and that maybe means that I haven't healed altogether. But, but the one time when somebody said to me early in my ministry career, Sinkhorn, you're just too idealistic, but don't worry, it'll pass eventually. <laughs> Blessed. 
Blessed are you if they revile you and persecute you because of me. God help me if I ever become less idealistic. In fact, I could tell you 20 something years after being told that I'm more idealistic now than ever. And I'll probably annoy you and try to push you to a higher standard than you want and sometimes you'll even reject me for it. Sometimes you'll refuse to cooperate with me because of it. Sometimes you won't support the ministries that I try to initiate because you think I'm pushing too hard and expect too much from you. And you know what? I could take it. I'll be okay. Now this is not an excuse for a lack of sensitivity. Remember, Jesus isn't calling you to be a jerk and giving you a license to suffer the consequences. Jesus is calling you to a whole different way of living where you give mercy, where you engage people in discipleship, where we are all walking behind the leadership of our master. That's what a disciple is, you know. And discipleship is as much about discipline as it is about grace. It's the grace of God that brings us into discipleship, but it's discipline that brings us into alignment with our master. And so, yeah, we're aiming for a high ideal. And there will be consequences because here in the church, in your workplace, in your household, I don't know if you've noticed this, I have. There are a lot of people who come to church on Sunday without someone else in their family sitting beside them. I used to call them Sunday morning widows, but it's really become more general than that. It's not just women. There are lots of people who come to church on Sunday thinking how much they wish someone else was here with them. Living for these be attitudes, that is be like Christ attitudes, will set you at odds with others. It's inescapable. And for us, persecution doesn't really translate into physical abuse or something like that, but it changes the way people treat us. It changes the way people act when we're in the room. And that's uncomfortable and it's not fun. And to be honest with you, it can change your career path. It can change the kinds of friendships you have. And it can even affect the resources that you used to be able to readily access that somehow aren't always available anymore. There's persecution and reviling when you really dedicate yourself to living the way of Christ. But understand this, Jesus is not saying that you're blessed if people are irritated with you because you're an irritating person, okay? You can laugh if you think that's funny. Because you know, some people just irritate and they're not doing it for any particular reason. They're just saying, you know, I'm my own person, I do my own thing and I am who I am and if they don't like it, that's too bad. And, and, and they irritate people and then they say, but it's all right, Jesus says I'm blessed because I'm irritating. No, you're not. Let's just settle that right now. And the reason I bring that up is, is because if today's takeaway is nothing else, let it be understood, I pray, that we are to 
irritate people because we're so committed to being like Christ, not because we want them to believe what we believe or share our values about whether the football players should kneel or stand or whether Donald Trump should stop tweeting some of the nonsense he tweets or, or whether or not we still believe that God is present in the schools and on and on it goes. You know, you take your pick on any issue you want. More often than not, the things that divide us are matters of our opinion and our tastes. As I shared with you last week, the United Methodist Church is divided because some people want to strictly adhere to the Bible's leadership as the primary source of truth for the church, and some people would like to adjust for, you know, make course corrections in the Bible to adapt to modern society. And there are problems that both sides have with that, and the realization is hitting us plainly that we can't change their minds and they can't change our minds. So what are we to do? Be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. He who came to redeem the lost world was opposed by the united forces of the adversaries of God and man in up, unpitying confederacy, evil... Let me rephrase that. In an unpitying confederacy, Evil men and evil angels arrayed themselves against the Prince of Peace, though his very word and act breathed of divine compassion, his unlikeliness to the world provoked the bitterest hostility. That's Ellen Gould White, who I quoted a couple of weeks ago. You see, you have to understand that if you're going to live this way, you're going to be painting a bullseye on yourself or you're going to put that laser dot right between your eyes and Satan's taking aim and you need to understand who the enemy is. And the enemy is not that person who doesn't agree with me. The enemy is not a society that doesn't care about what Christians care about. The enemy is not Christians so-called who think that we should do or not do certain things based on compassion and love and not necessarily based on truth. And, and on and on it goes. The enemy is not the other person. The enemy is Satan. Plain and simple. And the enemy was altogether aligned to destroy Jesus from day one. Remember they wanted to kill all the babies? Remember the storms that almost sank them? I mean, let's just think about all the ways the enemy has tried to destroy Jesus. And then simply say plainly and simply, those of us who choose to live this ridiculous, absurd ideal to the best of our ability, are probably going to suffer in like ways to our Savior. So I don't know what the answer to our societal problems is. I only know that if I will strive to be like Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, he just used the Beatitudes to give you a short summary. And the rest of this series is about the breakdown into the more detailed discovery of the heart of Jesus. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, for example. 
He says that by living in his imitation to be like Jesus attitudes, to, to do that is to make yourself something that enhances the flavor of things or preserves things. Now, some people like a lot of salt in their food and some people don't salt very much at all. I had a friend years ago, I used to marvel at him because whatever he ordered, we'd sit down to eat and the first thing he'd do is dump half a pound of salt on it without even tasting it. And I always thought that was kind of crazy, but then he probably thought I was crazy because I never salted anything. But salt is still there. Salt enhances flavor. It's one of those discoveries men learn when they decide that they are masters of the grill. Put a little salt on it, sear it really good, and somehow it tastes so much better. Put some salt on that meat when you don't have a refrigerator and it'll last a long time. Salt preserves and enhances things, but Jesus says when salt loses its saltiness, well, you know what it is. Try this experiment when you get home today. Grab some sand and some salt. Taste one, then taste the other. Then imagine the salt isn't salty anymore and realize that it's dirt. If salt isn't salty, it's dirt. Here's something that's really mind-boggling to me. If you mix sand and salt together, eventually the salt doesn't taste salty anymore. In fact, you can't even tell there's salt in there. So Jesus is saying, if you're gonna live this way, you need to understand that you are enhancing the world. You're even saving the world. Think for a minute about Abraham back in Genesis when he's pleading with God for the sake of Sodom. God's getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, look, God, if we could find just a few good people, a few grains of salt, would you save the city? God says, sure. If there's any salt to be found in that city that is people who love God and honor God, I won't destroy the city. Eventually, turns out there's nothing there but dirt. And then in a really ironic twist, you know, as Lot and his family are leaving Sodom, his wife turns to look back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. When we are the salt and the light of the world, we change the world. This is why I keep saying to you over and over again, our goal is to be disciples, seek disciples, and change the world. Because if we live out this discipleship, following dutifully our master, the Lord Jesus, leading others to him so that they can join us in alignment with the Lord, then we change the world. And you need to know you change the world just by being in it. You believers, you followers of Jesus Christ, the, the, the one who thinks they are the least in their tribe, like Gideon, let's say, you change the world because you're here. One of the things that I remember uh, as, as like, you know, a lot of people back in the 90s, we were reading those left behind books, right? And, and uh, you know, I was being very scientific as I read those books. Someday I'll preach or share with you 
some of my understanding and view of things like the rapture in the last days. But, but for now, let me just say that if there's a rapture and it means that God is going to remove all the church, all the Christians out of the world for a season, that would be like taking the salt out. And all of a sudden there's no preservative. There's nothing left but dirt like Sodom, let's say, or Gomorrah. You matter because you're here. You matter because you're idealistic. You matter whether or not you have perfected this Christian living. If you're in pursuit of righteousness, you make a difference. Do you see that? Do you know that as I've watched these hurricanes and these fires and these earthquakes and things, the, the unmistakable thing that I've noticed is, is where the Bible has been taught to the people, even generations ago, there are acts of mercy and bravery like none other. And in places where the same sorts of disasters happen and the Bible was not part of their heritage, people were like a bunch of wildebeests watching one of their own get caught by a lion. And they just ignore it. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that the same kinds of storms that devastated us in recent times have devastated other places in the world and tens of thousands of people die over time? And Yet the same thing happens in a place where the Bible was a part of the culture at least once upon a time. Things don't go the same way. There are more acts of mercy, more acts of caring and loving and deliverance and salvation and hope. See, even people who don't enjoy the same quality of relationship with God that we desire find themselves influenced and shaped by the culture that God created because of us. And those who came before us, you make a difference because you're here. Because you are devoted to living the way of Christ. So here's to all of us idealists. Let us never lose our zeal. And remember that in that way, we are united with all those others, wherever they are in the world, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen.